Good morning. I want you to know that I'm glad you're here today. Jim has teased me for years about how every time I preach, we have the smallest crowds in the world, and uh, I think that's true, but Debbie came all the way from the Philippines to be here today, so I'm thankful for that. I want to talk to you about uh, some things that happened in the Word of God this morning, and I want to draw some lessons for us, because you know what Christianity's about is it's about how I live, right? It's not about just learning some historical something that happened, but it's about how I live and my relationship to God. And the truth is, if you're like me, you struggle with that. You know, I struggle with it. I think most of us, if we're honest, throughout all of our lives are just keep hitting things that we struggle with. And God's Word is a resource for us. Now, we've been working on this series a little while so far, and uh, we've got... The age of the family, Yancey talked about this diagram here. We have the age of Moses and the age of Christ. And the age of the family, if you'll recall, that's back when God talked to people through the old man of the family. So if He was going to talk to the Chisholm family, He'd talk to Jim. And He'd say, Jim, get your family and you all move to South Dakota or whatever it was He wanted them to do. And that's what they would do. That changed at Mount Sinai when God gave the law And God spoke to all the people, just like I'm talking to you, and it scared them to death. And they said, Moses, you go talk to him and tell us what he said, because we're afraid if he talks to us again, we'll die. From that point on, God always spoke through a prophet. He spoke through prophets like Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Malachi and all these different prophets. This is a period of time that we are studying or we're going through right now, and we're going to pick some messages or some lessons out of that that uh, I believe are very beneficial and valuable to us. But what I want to do is I want to back up, before we leave this, to the period of the age of the family, and I want to call to mind what happened with Abraham. God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I want you to load the wagons, and I want you to leave behind everybody you ever knew, all your family and everybody except your immediate family, and I want you to leave, and I'll tell you where to stop. So Abraham did that. He loaded up and he traveled from the place he lived called Ur all the way around the Arabian desert over into what's called Canaan today. And when he was in Canaan, he walked through the mountains as a sheik, just an Arab sheik. And I imagine as he looked out, we know as he looked out, he would see scenes like this. And I don't know if that's clear enough for you to see from this mountain just off into all of that valley. Have you ever stood on a mountain and looked off into the distance and how pretty and majestic and amazing that can be? And one particular day, as it's recorded in Genesis chapter 13, we don't, I don't know if he was walking with his head down thinking or if he was looking around or talking to people or, or what, but I do know this, God came to him and God told him, to look around, and he says, all the land which you see, I will give to you. Can you imagine looking out and God saying, I'm going to give it all to you. Do you know what happened to Abraham? A few years later, his wife died, and he didn't even own a spot to bury her. He had to go buy a spot to bury her. A few years after that, he died. Now, he'd had a son, like God promised And that son had sons, and those sons had sons, and those sons had sons, but eventually, a couple of generations down, guess where they end up? 
They end up in Egypt as slaves. 400 years later is where Danny got us to at the end of our last study. 400 years later, they stand at the banks of the Jordan River. Moses has died, and they stand looking into what is called the promised land. The land that God promised. It comes, the word promised land comes from when God promised to give this land to Abraham and his descendants. 400 years later, they stand on the banks of the Jordan looking, and God says, Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them. So it's finally happened. After all this time, God says, You go in and you get it. And do you remember the Ark of the Covenant that the... It was this golden box with the angels on top of it and had the, the law and the Ten Commandments in it and all, and they had to carry it. It was about this size, and they carried it with poles that were through, the, through rings on the edges. They walk, he had the priests grab those poles and walk toward the Jordan River, which is, this is a picture of. And the Bible says that when they came to the Jordan River... Now, you remember God split the Red Sea. You remember that? Okay. Well, when they walked up to the Jordan River, the Bible says that... When the hem of their robes, and of course they wore robes back then, when the hem of their robes touched the waters, the waters just parted. And the people walked through the Jordan River on dry land into this land. And when they got there though, what God had told them to do was this. When you go into that land, you take it. You run everybody out, you defeat all the people that are there, and you take this land because it's yours, I gave it to you, and these people are ungodly, wicked, evil people. I want you to take this land. First place they see as they cross the Jordan River is a big city called Jericho. Not Jericho, but Jericho. And they come to Jericho and it's got big walls around the city. And they're supposed to take this city. Now, how do you take a city that has big walls around it? They've dug up Jericho, by the way. They've excavated, done archaeology studies over there. And here's what they found. The walls of the city of Jericho were built like this. They had this base wall here, and you can see the little people standing down here. On top of that was a large wall. And then there was a slope, a very steep slope, up to an upper wall. And the purpose for that is this. If you can ever get over that wall, it's real steep up to this one, and guess what you are while you're down here? Target practice for all of the archers that are up here. Because you've got to remember, you don't have guns, you don't have bombs, you don't have helicopters, you don't have RPGs and grenade launchers. You got swords and you got spears and you got bow and arrow. How are you going to take that city? What would you do? To start with, how do you get over that? I mean, that'd be a challenge, wouldn't it? And once you get over that, how are you going to get through that? And how are you going to get over that? We might could come up with a strategy. I mean, if we put our heads together and really I mean, Sam's got some military experience. In a submarine, that wouldn't help much, would it? <laughs> How are we going to do that? Well, God had a plan. And God's plan was the 
only time in history they ever took a city this way. God told them this. He said, I want you to march around the city. All you men of war, you shall go around the city once. This shall you do six days. Now, doesn't that sound like a plan? Let's go march around the city and then go back to camp. Then God tells them this. He says, on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. Ooh, now that's getting aggressive, isn't it? March around it seven times, and then what's going to happen? And the wall of the city will fall down flat. Now be honest. Would you believe that? I mean, really. That don't make any sense, does it? Would you believe that if you're one of the kind of people that sees God part the Red Sea and then 40 days later you're worshiping a golden cow? That'd be tough. That's not the way you fight a battle like this. To beat a city like this, militarily you lay siege to the city and starve them out. That takes a long, long time. Do you know what they did? They marched around the city one time a day for six days, and on the seventh day they marched around seven times. It says, And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. In fact, they've dug up the city like I told you archaeologists have. They say what happened, that lower wall, it crumbled and fell outward making a ramp for them to go right up into the city. Isn't that amazing? And what do you get from that? I mean, that's a cool story, especially if you believe the Bible, right? It's a neat story. What do you and I get from that? Well, I'll tell you a message that I get from that, and that's this. You and I need to obey God even when we don't understand why. Sometimes there's stuff God tells us to do that just doesn't make sense to us. Have you ever seen the uh, bumper sticker that says, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it? Well, you know, that's the attitude we're talking about here. Whether I understand it or not, why God said something doesn't matter. Now, when I was a kid growing up, I was one of those kids that, if I understood why, I'm all over that. I'm in, if I understand why. But I want to understand why. Mom and Dad say, do this, and I go, why? Well, normally they would explain to me. Sometimes they would just say, because I said so. But I wanted a why. With Christianity, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes there's stuff God wants you to do that just doesn't make sense to do. We've got story after story of that in the Bible, like this. Story like the book of Philemon, where God tells Onesimus to for, or Philemon to forgive Onesimus. And if we study that someday, there's all kinds of reasons not to forgive Onesimus. Nobody is going to expect him to forgive a guy like Onesimus. But God said to do it. Doesn't matter if you understand why. Sometimes you talk to people, well, it just doesn't make any sense that God would want me to be baptized. You know, I've baptized lots of people. I have never one time baptized somebody and seen a black scum of sin floating on the top of the water. How do I know God washes away your sins when you're baptized? I mean, does it make any sense that getting dunked in water would have anything to do with forgiveness? That's what God said. Since God said that, you know what? Whether I understand it or not, it's what God said. And if I'm a man of faith, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to obey God whether I understand why or not. Because He's God. 
and I'm not. You know, they go on into the land, and the Bible tells us that God distributed their land to them by allotment. And if you'll look at this map up here, He separated out, there were 12 tribes, and He separated out the tribes, and He gave them specific areas of land. Some of the tribes were bigger, and some of the tribes were very small, but He separated out land and told them, okay, this is where you're going to live, and this is where you're going to live, almost like states. And He set up a government for them, but their government wasn't a democracy like ours. You know, we seem to think that, hey, actually we have a representative republic is the only way that a government should exist. We're all in favor of democracy, right? But God had a different system here. His system was that He was their king and that in every city there was what we might call a supreme court of the city. And if you and I had a problem, God would had directed them that what you did is you went to the elders of the city who sat by the gate and you got an appointment and they judged your matter. Now that worked for a long time. In fact, Acts chapter 13 says, after that He gave them judges for about 450 years. That's twice as long as our representative republics existed here in the United States. And I don't know that I'd lay good odds that the U.S. is going to continue in this form for another 250 225 years. I don't know what y'all think. So what do you think about this? Would that be a good system? Good government system? Maybe we ought to go get our government system out of the Bible? Well, you know what happened at length was this guy named Samuel comes along. And Samuel was a godly man. A faithful godly man. But he had sons that weren't. And the Bible tells us that it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted judgment or justice. That would be a problem, wouldn't it? If people were dishonest. You know, we've probably got some dishonest judges in the United States, don't we? No doubt about it. But this was a real problem. This was a serious problem. Because the sons of the prophet were dishonest. What do you do about that? I mean, if we have a bad government system, dishonesty is the rule, people are taking bribes, you can't count on the government to be fair and honest, what do you do? Well, if you're them, you look around and you go, you know, remember Egypt? They had a king called him Pharaoh. And the Amalekites have a king, and the Ethiopians have a king, and the Philistines have a king, and the Moabites have a king, and the Hittites have a king, and everybody's got a king but us. We need to fix this system. We need a king. So they go to Samuel, and they ask for a king. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Isn't that a temptation for people to do today? I said, Oh, I don't know what you mean. We never want a king in America. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what we do as we look around for people who are more successful than us in whatever we're trying to do, and we try to emulate them, don't we? That's just good business practices, right? I mean, you find the business that's most successful, do what they did, and then you can be successful like them. But you know, in business, that's not a problem. 
But it is a problem when it comes to things that God has told us how to do. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. They haven't rejected you, Samuel. Samuel was very hurt. Well, it was his boys. I can understand that. Samuel should have had enough integrity to pull his boys out when his boys were crooked, shouldn't he? But he didn't. And Samuel gets all offended and all upset. Well, the people want a king now. And I can kind of feel his pain. I mean, here he's given his life to serving these people, being their prophet, talking with them and for God. And now all of a sudden they're abandoning the plan of God. And God tells him, He says, Samuel, they didn't forsake you. They didn't reject you. They've rejected me because you see, God was their king. Now that's an interesting story. They go ahead and He gives them a king. We don't have time to go into all the details about that right now. But, you know, when that happens, you know what uh, lesson I get out of that? And you may get a different lesson, but here's a lesson I get. Rejecting God's plan is the same thing as rejecting God. You see, they had a real problem. But the problem wasn't with the government system that God set up. The problem was with the corrupt people who were running the government system God set up. And you see, when something's not working, what's not working, if it's according to God's plan, what needs fixed are the people, not the plan. You see? Somebody says, well, I had a marriage and it was a bad marriage, so I got a divorce and I'm not ever going to get married again. I'm just going to live with somebody because marriage doesn't work. And what marriage does work. It's God's plan. Sometimes we need to fix the people that are involved in the plan and not try to fix the plan because when I reject what God told me to do, that's the same thing as rejecting God in His eyes. We see that as a theme through much of the Bible. The king God gave them was a guy named Saul. And I want you to know, if we were in Israel and we were going to pick the king, Saul is the guy we would have picked. He looked like a king. He was humble. I mean, he had all the kingly stuff going on. He's the fellow we would have picked. But you see, Saul started humble, but he didn't stay humble. Actually, they had several kings, and we're going to briefly cover some things about each one of these three guys. And they have this huge kingdom by the time we get to Solomon. And then the the kingdom separates into two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. And Judah and Israel both have their sets of kings. And a lot of this will be talked about next week. And goes on and on. But what we're going to do is we're going to go back here whoops, and talk about Saul. God... God told them that Saul was going to be king. And he was king and a good king for a while, but Saul... You know, have you ever heard the phrase, the power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? Saul was an example of this and his power went to his head. Saul thought because he was the king that he could do what Saul wanted to do and he didn't have to obey anybody, ultimately even God. Now, I mentioned the Amalekites earlier. Amalek was a wicked, wicked nation. They were so wicked. When, 
when uh, the king is finally killed, Samuel the prophet who kills him tells him, he says, your sword has made many women childless. And today your mother's going to be childless because of him. He was a very, very wicked man. God said, I want you to go into that nation and I want you to kill everyone and everything. I want you to destroy it all. Just destroy everything. Don't keep anyone or anything alive. So Saul takes his troops and he goes down to fight. And when he gets down there, well, I'm going to keep that blank until we get to that verse. When he gets down there, they fight and they kill everybody except the king. And they destroy everything except the very best animals and they're going to make a sacrifice to God. So he comes back and God told Samuel, he said, Saul's coming and he didn't obey me. You need to go meet him. So Samuel goes out to meet Saul. And he gets out here, and here comes Saul. And Saul says, Blessed be you, man of God. I've done what God sent me to do. And Samuel said, Then why do I hear animals? Weren't you supposed to kill all the animals? He said, Well, the people brought some animals back. But they're just going to make a sacrifice to God. You know, Just a big sacrifice to God. But the rest, everything else, we destroyed. (laughs) And Samuel says, God told you to destroy everything. When you were little in your own sight, God made you king of Israel. But now, you think you don't have to obey God. He goes, oh no, no, I did everything that God told me to do. We just brought back Agag the king and the rest, everything else, I did. Now the people, they brought back some sacrifice animals, but but everything else I did, God told me to do. And then Samuel tells him this. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Do you know why they were supposed to offer sacrifice? In the Old Testament, do you know why you were told to offer sacrifice? Because you had sinned. Because you disobeyed God. Now what's better, to not disobey God or to offer sacrifice? Well, it's better to obey God than to disobey Him and then offer sacrifice. That's not what satisfies God. Well, I can offer sacrifice for this later. I'll take care of that. No. It works better to obey God. And he goes ahead and he says this, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, He's also rejected you from being king. He says, Rebellion is just like witchcraft. And stubbornness is like iniquity and idolatry. You know, nowadays in America, we almost look on stubbornness as though that's a, something to be admired. Well, he's a stubborn old guy, isn't he? There's nothing to be admired in the eyes of God. Stubbornness is like iniquity and idolatry. The message I get out of that is rebellion's like witchcraft, and stubbornness is like idolatry. You don't want to be rebellious. I know they say rebellion is a stage that kids go through. Rebellion's not just a stage, it's a sin. It's a sin just like witchcraft. And this afternoon during our application time, one of the things we're going to talk about is this verse, and I'm going to show you why rebellion is like witchcraft, how they're similar, because it seems to be a strange comparison, doesn't it? When I think of witchcraft, I don't think of rebellion and vice versa. But I believe there's a very 
very important principle for us to learn out of that. Well, after Solomon comes David, and you know David, he killed Goliath. David, when God sent Samuel down to anoint David, he didn't tell him it was David. He just said, go to the house of Jesse. I want one of his boys to be anointed to be king because Saul's been rejected. So Samuel gets down there and he says to Jesse, he says, bring your boys in. I'm going to anoint one of them king. So he brings the firstborn in and he's a kingly looking guy, you know. And, and Samuel looks at him and he goes, ah, this, this is the king. This is the king. And God says, nope, I've rejected him. So he brings the next one in. Ah, this one. Yeah, yeah, I see. This one's the king. Nope, I've rejected him. Brings the next one. Ah, here is the king. Nope. Finally, Jesse goes, and he, he says, don't you have any more boys? He goes, well, i got this. You know, the youngest kid, he's out taking care of sheep, but he's just a, a kid. He said, bring him in. And it was David. And David did not look like a king. He was just a kid. The Bible says he was kind of red-headed and of reddish complexion, which was strange for a Jew. Jewish people are not normally that way. And Samuel looked at him. And metaphorically at least, really God? And God tells him this. For the Lord does not see as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You know, you cannot tell by looking at somebody what kind of heart they have. Pharisees looked awful good religiously, but you just can't tell. God doesn't judge people on their outward appearance. God judges people on their heart. He doesn't judge by how religious we seem. He judges by whether we have a contrite heart that will serve and follow Him. He doesn't judge us by the outward works that we do, but He judges us by the heart that motivates those outward works. And the lesson that I get out of that is that God is judging you and me by our hearts this morning, today, and tomorrow, and the next day. That's what He's judging. David goes ahead and becomes king, and there's an instance that happens. Back when King Saul was king, they went against the Philistines in battle, and they took the Ark of the Covenant, which, like I told you, was a box similar in size to this. God told them not to. They did anyway. God made them lose the battle, and the Philistines ended up with the Ark of the Covenant. They send it back to Israel because they have trouble with it. People are getting diseases everywhere it is. Anyway, it sits in a guy's barn for 40 years. David's king... And David says, hey, you know what? We need to bring that Ark of the Covenant back. So they go to bring the Ark of the Covenant back, and they have this big parade. And before he does it, though, he does something really wise. He says, you know what? I want it to come back, but I'm not just going to do that. I'm going to ask counsel and advice. So he went, and the Bible says that he talked to the leaders of the people and all the people, and he said, if it seems good to you, and if it is of the Lord our God... And the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. You know, we are uh, board members of our school board. And one of the things, that, we're a Christian homeschool association. One of the things that happens all the time on almost every decision is somebody says, well, let's just seek the will of God for this decision. You know, let's pray God for His will for this decision. And you know what? I don't have a thing in the world against that. I think that's a noble and important thing to do. Exactly what they did. 
Let's just seek the will of God. Do you think this is what God wants us to do? And the answer to that from all the people was yes. I think that's what God wants us to do. It makes sense. The Ark of the Covenant should be in the capital. It shouldn't be in some guy's barn. This is the mercy seat. We should build a temple for it. I mean, doesn't that make sense to you? It would to me. I think that's a great thing. The problem was, they didn't do it the way God told them to do it. God told, had told them, remember, you put the poles in, threw the rings in the, in, the, in the box, and then the Levites get on the ends and they put it up on their shoulders and they carry the box. He said, don't touch the box. It's been in Abinadab's barn. His boys, us and Ohio, get to drive the ark. Drive. And what they do, instead of carrying it, they put it on an ox cart. Set it up on this ox cart. Because these are modern days, you know. Nowadays, we got good ox carts. We don't have to carry everything by hand. It's much better to carry it this way. And they have this big parade, and David's there singing, and they're playing music. And I mean, it's just a wonderful celebration of God being the center. I mean, their intention was great, wasn't it? Their motive, their intent was great. Except, they hit this spot in the road that's rough. And the oxen stumble. And the cart shakes. And when it does, this Ark of the Covenant starts to fall. Now, put yourself in the place of Uzzah. This thing's going to fall and break. You know what they're going to do to you for driving this cart too fast and breaking the ark? (laughs) They are going to string you up right here in front of everybody. So he reaches out and grabs it to catch it, to stop it from falling. And when he does, the Bible tells us, the anger of the Lord was aroused against us and he struck him because he put his hand to the ark and he died there before God. God killed him. Bang! Just like that. Now that's a severe thing, isn't it? Why did God do that? Well, David, they, of course, the party's over <laughs> when that happens. Somebody dies, that, like my mom used to say, it's, always, it's all fun and games until somebody loses an eye, <laughs> and then the party's over. Somebody dies, the party's over. So what happened? God, David finally tells them, he says, the Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought Him not after the due order. You know what that means? That means that God told them what to do, but He told them how to do it. And when they were doing it, they just didn't do it the way He told them to do it. And the lesson I draw out of that for you and I today is when God tells us how, how matters. What matters... What He tells us to do matters, and we need to do what He tells us to do, but when He tells us how, that how also matters, or He wouldn't have bothered to tell us how. I believe that message is taught all through Scripture. Now, Solomon, the last guy we're going to talk about today, and Solomon says there's... Solomon, when he became king, God gave him a special gift of wisdom. Wisest man that ever lived. He was famous, he was rich, he was wise. You know a lot of this because David talked about it during our our meeting where we talked about Ecclesiastes. Solomon was a very wise guy. Politically, he had great savvy, great smarts. He married all the daughters of all the kings in all the surrounding countries. 
for political alliance so that what you had was Israel and then you had all these nations surrounding them that were in alliance with Israel. So you couldn't attack Israel. You had to attack these states around Israel before you got to Israel. I mean, it was a great plan politically. He ended up with 300 wives and 700 concubines, which a concubine was a kind of a second-class wife. A thousand wives this guy had. And they took his heart away from God. Because, you know, a guy wants to keep his wife happy. Isn't that right, Jason? (laughs) All of us. I want to keep my wife happy. Because the old, mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy saying, there's truth in that, right? We want to keep our wives happy. He wanted to keep his wives happy. They served other gods. Well, you know, you know, we got lots of money. Build her a temple for her God. Well, she wasn't happy with that. You never go to temple with me. And for long, Solomon, okay, okay. I'll go. Before long, Solomon was serving other gods. I say before long. It took years and years. But ultimately, he ended up serving other gods. And it cost him dearly. It cost him tremendously in his life. I believe, like David believes, that Ecclesiastes is his book of repentance, so to speak, the end of his life, saying here's what he had learned. And the Bible tells us that he said this, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Another thing he said is every way of a man is right in his own eyes. And you know what I learned from that is that you and I should not trust our own judgment. Sometimes things seem like really the right thing to do when it's different than what God said to do. And when it's different than what God said to do, no matter how right it seems, it's not right. The only thing that's right is what God said. And what God says is always right, regardless of how it seems to me. The final thing I want to mention that Solomon said was this. Solomon said, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Now, I expect several of our young ones here can quote this with us. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. That's the summation of Solomon's life, and that's what it boils down to is right there. You need to fear God and obey Him because judgment is coming. For everybody, all your secrets, God is going to make them known. You don't have any secrets from anybody that God is not going to make known. He's going to judge you for your secrets. So, Solomon ended up with a kingdom like this. The Bible tells us it went from the Euphrates River up here all the way down almost to the Red Sea. It was a huge, huge area that Solomon had control over. Solomon was the most powerful man on earth. This was the most powerful nation in the world. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And you know what's fixing to happen? Within a matter of two weeks, it's gone. Two weeks, it's over. When Solomon dies, things can change in a hurry. And what the lesson next week is going to be is how this great nation was destroyed. That's where it's going to start. And we're going to see how that happened and carry on through the end of the Old Testament and these prophets and what they had to say to Israel. So, in summary, 
Today's lessons we've learned. Obey God even when you don't understand why. It's a lesson we all need to remember. Rejecting God's plan is the same thing as rejecting God. When rebellion is like witchcraft and stubbornness is like idolatry, God is judging you by your heart right now always. When God tells us how, the how matters. We're not free just to do it however we want. We have to do it how God said. You can't trust your own judgment. You need to trust what God says and fear Him and obey Him because judgment is coming. That's true for all of us. I hope you've been encouraged by some of these thoughts and I hope maybe it will help you in your life in some way. We always offer an invitation if somebody would like prayers or... uh, relationship with God in a way you need something, you're not right with Him for some reason, we want to pray with you and for you. We want to work together because we're all in this Christian life together trying to serve the Lord. So uh, if there's any spiritual need, come to the front and make that known while we stand and sing.